2: This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. In this weekly podcast, you will get the latest insight on Husker football, basketball, and baseball from HOL's Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, Dan Hoppen, Nate Klaus, and Greg Peterson. Now, here's your host, HuskerOnline.com publisher, Sean Callahan. Well, it's been quite a week here for
3: Nebraska. It was uh, about as quiet as you could get in recruiting. And just like that lightning strikes... Uh, Nebraska was at 12 commits um, the last couple of weeks here in July. The open period opened back up again where uh, schools could host prospects and uh, have contact with prospects again. And uh, Nebraska lands two commits here um, in this middle of July period. Uh, It started first with DiCaprio Boodle, uh, a speedy defensive back out of Miami, Florida that Nebraska saw in the satellite camp DiCaprio. Uh, as we reported on HuskerOnline.com, uh, planned to visit to Nebraska and he ended up committing uh, before he even really set foot on campus. I mean, it was kind of a done deal the minute they bought the plane tickets. And then Nebraska also lands another commit uh, from Bo Wilson from Kansas City, an offensive lineman, and uh, we bring in Nate Klaus as uh, we start out this show with some breaking recruiting news over this week here, Nate. Uh, first of all, any surprises with the, the way these announcements have moved?
0: Well, I think the surprise is, you know, most likely with DiCaprio Boodle, who announced so soon. You know, he arrived on campus Wednesday night and really began his his unofficial visit to Nebraska, you know, Thursday. Um, you know, and wasted little time to to go ahead and announce that commitment and make things official with uh, with Nebraska's uh, staff. You know, it, it doesn't come as a surprise that he committed. Um, yeah, as you alluded to, it was it seemed like things were going that direction once he and his entire family decided uh, to take the trip at this point in time, and and definitely you know with his connection with his uh, older brother having played at, at Nebraska Omaha down there uh, when they still had their football program. So um, you know, it it, it just uh, uh, we didn't really see it coming this fast I guess and uh and tremendous pickup for Nebraska you know and, and really one of the first guys you can point to and said say that uh this commitment is a direct product of the satellite camps you know DiCaprio was uh, uh the the overall fastest player at the Miami satellite camp and that's saying something yeah and there's over 400 kids there and and uh, tremendous amount of of talent down there and uh he ran uh, in the four threes um and uh was the overall fastest guy and uh, and has good size too. He's he's not a just a small guy. He's you know five uh, eleven, hundred seventy pounds, and, and a legit cover corner that uh, brings verifiable you know track speed to the team.
3: Yeah, it is interesting uh, that that connection, and you, you just never know the connections you have. And I'm guessing Nebraska had no idea that DiCaprio had a brother that's already played in Nebraska for UNO back when they had a football team, and that was some good reporting by our own Mike Mattia. Um, who reported that information first about the connection to Nebraska and uh, I think it just shows that he's got parents that are comfortable sending a kid to school in Nebraska
0: well and, and they know what you know the University of Nebraska is all about um, the, the history and the tradition and and of course uh, you know a lot of times you know parents want to see their kids get out of out of the city um, get out of the state even to go somewhere like Nebraska uh, where there's you know very little distractions uh, going on so um, you know it, it's uh, it was uh, very nice to, to have you know parents who are comfortable with having a kid uh, away from home and, and wanting to see him at a place like Nebraska.
3: Sean Callahan, Nate Klaus here on the HuskerOnline.com podcast covering the breaking recruiting news over this week where Nebraska gets two late-week commits, first from cornerback DiCaprio Boodle, who we've been talking about, but also, Nate, from offensive lineman Bo Wilson out of the Kansas City area. And you know no stranger, at least some at West High School, Nebraska had Monte Harrison as a commit and a signee out of there a couple of years ago that chose to go play pro baseball, uh, but you know, Nebraska offered Bo Wilson. It was somewhat of a surprise because uh, he didn't really have a lot of major offers, but Mike Cavanaugh's obviously sees something in this young man.
0: Well, bo wilson is a, a th- kind of a throwback offensive lineman you know uh, hard nosed tough guy you know he plays the game uh, with a with a passion and uh, and he's he's uh he gets down and dirty out there on the football field and i know that's something that that definitely intrigues uh you know coach mike kavanaugh and he likes to see guys with an attitude and, and play the game um uh, you know uh, uh with that type of demeanor so uh, but outside outside of that you know he's a tremendous athlete he's uh you know, not the biggest guy at 6'2", uh, 277 pounds, um, you know, which was which, which verified at the St. Louis uh, Rivals Combine, uh, but uh, he plays offensive tackle, uh, can play inside uh, at guard or center, so uh, a tremendous athlete. I think he'll be a center at Nebraska, which kind of allows, uh, you know, the Huskers to move both John Raritan and Brian Brokop to uh, to the guard positions where I think, are you know, their natural spots uh, along the line.
3: Yeah, how rare is it? that you don't necessarily hear that very often where you automatically say we're bringing this guy in as a center
0: yeah it very rarely happens usually the best offensive lineman you know on, on any on any high school team is is playing you know the tackle uh, or guard but um, not too often that you see a kid with the versatility of Bo Wilson and in uh, the athleticism to to really pencil him in as a center uh, as a guy who projects very well at center uh, on the next level
3: You're listening to the HuskerOnline.com podcast. Sean Callahan and Nate Klaus says, we look at this offensive line, Nate. Nebraska lost four a year ago. They're going to lose six scholarship guys this year. So quite an imbalance in the numbers. I mean, typically, you would only like to see three to four a year leaving uh, to have 10 go in two years. It's put Mike Cavanaugh in a very difficult number situation uh, they kind of fell one short last year on the tackle side we've seen them now load up again on the interior uh, with uh, two guards and a center uh, ideally you, you get Matt Farniak as a tackle that's offensive line guy number four where do you think they go for number five and possibly number six
0: well, I wouldn't be surprised if they look uh, in the JUCO ranks uh, to bring in an offensive tackle. And I think they ideally would like to add, you know, three more um, offensive tackles to this class. You know, they're sitting, like you mentioned, they're sitting very well with Matt Farniak out of South Dakota, um, you know, and, and a number of other offensive tackle prospects across the country. But uh, I, I really do think that they'll entertain the, the idea of bringing in uh, junior college offensive tackles, somebody who can step in right away, somebody who helps break. Break up, uh, you know, and redistribute those numbers, too. Because
3: you look at the roster, your tackles right now. I mean, you got David Neville, um, Christian Gaylord, and that's about it. I mean, there's not a lot of uh, younger tackle bodies that you can have a lot of confidence in at this point.
0: Yeah, for whatever reason, Nebraska's – uh, had absolutely no problem over the past few years recruiting on the interior, but they've they've had trouble signing you know uh, offensive tackle prospects, and and now they're kind of in a bind. Like you mentioned, uh, you know Mike Mike Cavanaugh is, is in kind of a predicament, uh, needing to sign some quality uh, talent there at the offensive tackle. I spot. just I
3: think it's tough just to get pro personnel here, especially at quarterback and offensive tackle and, and receiver. You just don't get a lot of. Prototypical six-seven tackles. That's why I like when an Andrew Pete decommitted or not decommitted, but didn't sign up Nebraska. That was a huge blow because you just don't get those kinds of tackles, and it's shown in recruiting uh, for Nebraska. And Nate, uh, one other recruiting storyline is Terry Wilson. We'll stick with the Wilson last name. Uh, he tweeted this week that he will not be taking his visit to Oregon, um, or he's postponed it and not, um, to a later date. Good news, bad news for Nebraska.
0: Well, it's hard to get a read on right now. Um, You know, when when he first came out and said that he was planning on visiting Oregon, uh, I didn't have any concerns at all. You know, uh, he's been very, um, you know, he's very much in in love with Nebraska and uh, loves everything about the program, has built a a tremendous relationship with the coaching staff. Uh, But I think as time has gone on, you know, he's developed somewhat of a a good relationship with uh, Oregon offensive coordinator Scott Frost as well. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's uh, a good thing maybe the, to space that visit out and that he's going to be taking an official visit, you know, where they can pay uh, his way up there. Uh, you know, maybe it gives Nebraska some more time to try and get him on campus and, uh, you know, continue to foster that, that, that relationship there before he heads out to Eugene for a game. But, um, you know, I, I would say that I'm not quite as comfortable uh, with things right now as I was, you know, a month, month and a half ago.
3: I'm just going to throw out my conspiracy theory here. You got Scott Frost who – Obviously, would have liked to have the Nebraska job, or even maybe be the coordinator. Well, he's not at Nebraska, and you've got Oregon State staff here, the the rival. Part of me thinks there's a little bit of motivation on this one for Scott Frost to try to get this guy away from the former Oregon State coaches at Scott Frost's alma mater.
0: Yeah, that could certainly be the case, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some underlying motivation to to do that. Uh, but Terry Wilson also, you know, he fits – he kind of fits the mold of, of – They have a guy
3: committed though. Yeah, so. they do
0: have a guy committed. But Nebraska's got two two quarterbacks committed also. But, you know, and, and Terry Wilson, you know, from an athletic standpoint, I think he does kind of fit the mold of, of the type of quarterback that they've recruited, you know, over the past, you know, four or five years. Uh, he's a tremendous athlete. He can pass. Uh, we, we know that he's obviously athletic and can run whenever he wants to. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it is an interesting storyline to to have you know uh, a former Husker quarterback trying to poach a quarterback from Nebraska now.
3: With the backstory that that former Husker quarterback would obviously like to be the coach at Nebraska mm-hmm. someday, so yeah, that, that's one to watch. Um, I think the longer it goes though without him being in Oregon, and if then if Nebraska can just get him here for that South Alabama game or the BYU game or the Wisconsin one of those games early. Um, that is going to be huge.
0: That'll be that'll be uh, you know really big for Nebraska and and at the end of the day I, I think it, a lot of it is going to boil down to to distance. Um, you know he's he's told me that his mother wants to, to see him play in college and you know driving from Oklahoma City to uh, to Lincoln is is a lot easier to do than, than heading out to Eugene.
3: Eugene. <laughs> well we will have a full podcast here today. Dan Hoppe and Robin Washett are going to join us. Uh, we're going to have our thoughts on the Nebraska basketball schedule released um also are, are, uh, an update on kind of where things are at in basketball recruiting and the assistant coach shirt search for Rashawn bruno and then we'll close the show with some football talk but we'll talk basketball next here on the podcast with dan hoppin and robin washett
2: this is huskeronline.com your authority on nebraska athletics And welcome back to the podcast. Sean Callahan, Robin Washington, Dan
3: Hoppen. Now we're shifting over to basketball and it's been a pretty somewhat eventful offseason for Nebraska and we're going to spend the next portion of the show uh, just getting caught up all things Husker basketball. First of all, Robin, uh, welcome back from your 17 day (laughs) European. I hope it was a basketball scouting trip for you or something at least.
4: Yeah, really. I was, I was kind of just hoping out the coaching staff, really evaluating the top talent in Italy, Germany, and France, and uh, I got some notes for him, So, you know, I'm just trying to do my part.
3: Wait, what's that guy on ESPN? Uh, Fran Frischilla. He, oh, yeah. he, he's kind of the European scouting guy. You You're
4: just you just call me the Rivals.com Fran Frischilla. How about that?
3: <laughs> well, let's 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 get right down to it, guys. Um, as we kind of go over what's happened, you know, Rashawn Bruno was at Nebraska. What for six weeks, Robin? Yeah, about six seven weeks highest paid assistant on the staff when hired by like a couple thousand dollars over, um, you know, Molinari and, and Hunter, uh, but decides to leave to go to Arizona state, uh, with a longtime friend of his, uh, Bobby Hurley, mm-hmm. which I don't think anybody is too shocked by, but, First of all, your thoughts on that situation and kind of where is Nebraska today?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can look at it a couple ways. Obviously, you know, Rashawn had his reasons to go to Arizona State. I mean, the, the connection with the Hurley family that he has, you know, goes well beyond anything professional. So uh, it's, it's understandable why he would be drawn to that. But at the same time, to fully commit to a school, accept a job, And be there for seven weeks, and then all of a sudden leave that school basically hanging uh, in limbo with their coaching staff right before the July recruiting period, which is the most important month of the recruiting cycle. And every coach will tell you that. Uh, I thought it was pretty shady.
3: You wonder if he bought a house even in Lincoln. No,
4: I know he didn't. I think he was living at the Embassy Suites, you know, like most coaches do for a while, and then, uh, I mean, I don't know, even know if you can buy a house in seven (laughs) weeks around here. But you know, it's it was like I said, it really put Nebraska in a tough spot you know I mean that this guy was not only you know your highest paid coach but he was really getting Nebraska involved with a a bunch of recruits that um, you know he was making an immediate impact that everybody was excited about I mean this was the guy the young guy from Florida that you know had experienced you know the highest level of basketball uh, college basketball and uh, was really going to invigorate this staff and now uh, Nebraska's uh, left kind of scrambling right now because I don't know who you're going to be able to draw away uh, from a, a school that they're currently at at this point in the season. I mean, because, you know, you're asking them to do uh, something that, again, we're, we're criticizing Bruno for doing as a pretty shady deal. So it's it's really tough, but, you know, I think it's not you know it's not the end of the world by any means. We're talking about an assistant coach. Uh, Nebraska still has two very capable guys on staff with Kenya Hunter, who has been working his butt off this whole year. And I think people need to give him uh, as much credit as anybody. And then, of course, Jim Molinari is doing his work as well. So uh, it's, it's certainly not ideal, but, you know, Nebraska will survive.
1: In some good news, uh, as far as basketball recruiting goes, we saw Aguka Rope, who's a 2017 Nebraska recruit. He returned to the court after missing almost his entire junior or excuse me sophomore season uh, with a knee injury. Um, can you just kind of update us on him and and how he's looked? How he he's looked recovering? great, by the way, in that video we have on the site.
4: Yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. Uh, a video courtesy of uh, Channel Seven did a great package on him, showing some highlights of him uh, playing on the AAU circuit with Omaha Elite. And uh, I'll tell you what, not only does he look as good as he did when you know I was able to watch him last summer, but I think he looks even better. And you know, he credits that to the physical therapy he had to do because of this injury. You know, I mean, he probably did more leg workouts than he's ever done in his life, and You can see that pay off. I mean, he's elevating higher. He just looks stronger, faster, and uh, I think that you know this could be potentially a blessing in disguise. I mean, you never want a a season-ending knee injury, but I mean the fact is it happened one game into his sophomore season, so he's got plenty of time to recover. And uh, if he's hitting the ground running, you know the way he is this summer on into the high school season, uh, he could be you know arguably one of the top players in the state this year.
3: Yeah, I'll be honest, Robin. When I saw him at state his freshman year play against, I think it was Norfolk, and they got beat. He just looked like a skinny off-guard freshman player. He looked like a true small forward in those videos, uh, the way he was coming down and dunking with the East.
4: Mm-hmm. And that's what you uh, you got to give Tim Miles credit. I mean, once again, he's able to identify these kids before they blossom. I mean, Isaiah Roby is another perfect example of that. I mean, when I when I first did my f- first update on Isaiah Roby, people were you know calling him asking if he was twelve years old, and now he's regarded as one of the top players in the state of Illinois. So uh, hopefully, Arope continues to to follow that same trajectory. And uh, you know, from what we've seen so far in his brief return, uh, it's looking at a pretty good chance of that.
3: You're listening here to the HuskerOnline.com podcast. Sean Callahan and Robin Washett as uh, we're getting caught up on on all the storylines that have happened here uh, the last couple weeks in Husker basketball and you know, uh, Robin, uh, with recruiting, there, there's been some walk-ons added to the roster, uh, a few other things. Where's Nebraska at with the numbers here as uh, they, they kind of get geared up for the start of school?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, last time I was on, the, the Pascal Chukwu was uh, still in the mix, but, uh, you know, that uh, didn't uh, come to fruition, and so Nebraska's still left with that one spot that – Right now, unless something you know crazy happens between you know now and the the start of the fall semester, I think that spot's going to go unused. And uh, so Nebraska is you know trying to do the best it can to to piece together a roster. And you're starting to see that you know start, get some bodies in on the walk on front. Uh, you know the the most recent addition uh, was a guy named Malcolm Laws, who was a, a sophomore uh, shooting guard at Florida Atlantic and never really saw the the floor. But uh, it's interesting. You know he was not recruited by Nebraska. You know and really it was. All on his end that he wanted to come play here. So uh, Nebraska, you know, you know, didn't hesitate to take him on as a walk-on, and uh, we'll see what type of player he can be. But if nothing else. Uh, he joins, uh, you know, guys like Josh Lanasa, who uh, wa- verbally committed to walk on about a month ago, and uh, of course, Johnny Trueblood, the the state champion guard from uh, Norfolk, and uh, then uh, B.J. Day, who uh, the Southeast kid who uh, sat out all last year with a knee injury, and so that's a, a pretty decent walk-on class that, you know, I think will help with in terms of numbers, if nothing else.
3: Yeah, I'm going to ask you this. You played, obviously, at Hastings College for a year, and, and you had the opportunity to to join Nebraska as a walk-on, and uh, but it, it's it's a tough route. I mean, I mean, what? How difficult is it um, for a guy to come in as a walk on? I mean, you think about the history of the program. There haven't been a lot of walk ons that have made heavy contributions, some spot minute appearances, but nothing uh, big time.
1: No, you know, I I think uh, you know almost the ceiling for a lot of walk on guys is kind of what we saw. You know, out of guys like Mike Fox or Cole Solomon during the Doc Sadler era.
4: Drake G- baranik
1: Yeah, guys, guys. Who Berlander. Were like- Well, yeah, Volander would probably be about the top end, about as much as you can expect. But a lot of these guys are just kind of maybe undersized big guys who got playing time because Nebraska had so much trouble retaining players. Um, You know, there are definitely players down on other levels that can make an impact at Nebraska. But, you know, if you're expecting a walk-on to come in and give you – 20, 25 minutes of Division One. Yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, you, if you can get just a couple minutes out of them or a little bit of shooting or something like that, that's about as much as you can expect,
3: to be honest. We're going to pick up the basketball talk here more in the next segment as Nebraska did release their schedule, and Robin and Dan will give their thoughts on the non-conference
2: schedule next. Dope. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the podcast. Husker Basketball released their schedule this week. And, you know, as
3: Nebraska basketball has raised their profile the last couple of years, this is definitely something I think that garners more and more interest because Nebraska obviously has a a big fan base now, a high season ticket base. And um, definitely you get more talk on the schedule uh, than you might have maybe in the Sadler or the Collier era, uh, just because Nebraska, uh, you know, more people go down to these games. And um, Robin and Dan, as we bring Robin Washington and Dan hopping back in the show, um, your initial thoughts, Robin, I'll start with you. When you look at the schedule, um, six of the 13 games are against what you'd consider power programs, um, so I don't think you can be overly critical about the strength of it.
4: Yeah, it's, it's a schedule that's kind of all over the place a little bit. You know, I mean, you got, you know, a trip to Villanova and then a trip against – or uh, home games against, you know, teams that were, you know, towards the 350th in the RPI last year. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's a good, challenging schedule, you know, in terms of being able to play in some of these, uh, you know, tournaments like the Barclays and, you know, the, obviously the Gavit tip-off game. and um, So I, I think that it, it's a good mix – For Nebraska, I think that, you know, with the young team, you didn't want to go. Completely overboard by you know scheduling uh, a ridiculous non-con schedule, especially with how good the Big Ten's going to be this way. I mean, uh, the reality is you're going to have to try and stockpile some wins, and I think they gave themselves a chance to do that while still uh, giving them a non-conference slate that's going to be respectable when it comes to you know potential uh, NCAA tournament seating.
1: Yeah, to me the thing that was kind of interesting, and Robin, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, if my memory isn't serving me right, but I thought when Tim Miles came in, he kind of expressed a desire to kind of move away from, you know, some of these mm-hmm. really low RPI games when you're talking about a southeastern louisiana or arkansas pine bluff, Abilene christian, you know, teams like that but at the same time, like you mentioned, you know, sometimes you just got to put some wins up on the yeah. board to to get your resume going. And when you play in the Big Ten and when you're playing in some of these, uh, you know, some of these tournaments and uh, and showcases and stuff, you are going to have to just get some of those home games where maybe it's not the most exciting thing in the world for the fans, but you just got to stock up some wins. And, and yeah, I mean, you look at a lot of these games, they look like fun. I think that Barclays Center Classic has a chance to be really cool just because of the venue itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that arena is only a couple of years old up in New Jersey. I mean, that's that's tremendous. That's going to be a lot of fun.
4: Well, as long as they take care of business early in that, I mean, they got a chance to play, you know, uh, t- potentially two of Cincinnati, Georgetown, Washington, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That right there is going to, you know, be a pretty intriguing intriguing matchups there. So, so, do they
3: have to win those two games to guarantee or are they automatically they, do they automatically get to go to New York?
4: Yeah, they, they're automatically going to go. Um, their first two guaranteed games are Southeastern Louisiana and Arkansas Pine Bluff. So assuming uh, no disaster happens there and they win those, then they're going to get matched up with at least one of those four that I just mentioned. And if they win that game, then uh, chances are they're going to face uh, another one of that group. Hopefully there's some TV for that. You would think that, Yeah, think there'll be something. I mean,
3: You've got Cincinnati, Georgetown, Washington, and Tennessee – um, as potential opponents. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, I, I just don't, I'm curious how that falls. You, you, you hope it's not Cincinnati because they just played those guys right. two years in a row. It would be nice to see them play Georgetown. Georgetown's going to be good, though. And you, I know Villanova going back to that opening uh, Big East deal that, Tuesday, uh, you know, it's the second game of the season. Mm -hmm. Talking to Rob Anderson, uh, the Creighton Media Relations Director, um, he said this is one of Villanova's better teams. They're going to have, you know, they're another, they're a team that's a top five type program again. Um, so that is not going to be an easy trip out to Philadelphia.
4: Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, we you start the year uh, at home against Mississippi Valley State, who was 6-26 and 26 last year, ranked number 345 in uh, last year's RPI, and the very three days later, you're heading out to Philadelphia to place a former number one seed that won 33 games last year that might be better than they were a year ago, even though they lost their leading score. So uh, Nebraska better be ready in a hurry uh, with this young team, which, as we've been talking about, makes that overseas trip to Spain so important to get some uh, extra games under their belt because uh, if you're just relying on Mississippi Valley State to get you ready for Villanova yeah you're going to have some problems
1: I, I agree completely Robin I think that's a great point I think that you know this is a team that is going through so much change as they lose their leading scorer Terran Petaway and Walter Pitchford another guy who played huge minutes for them they're going to be injecting a lot of newcomers Andrew White and Glenn Watson Ed Morrow guys like that into this lineup it might take a little time for these guys to uh, to kind of gel together and figure out where each other like the ball, how they're going to play together. So I kind of wish that that Villanova game were maybe t- more towards the end of the non-conference schedule Um, and let Nebraska develop a little continuity, but obviously they don't have that luxury.
3: And by the way, guys, whoever is the scheduler for the Big Ten ACC Challenge, I'm I'm just going to fire the guy. (laughs) I don't know who he is, uh, but let's just have Miami come back to Lincoln again.
4: Yeah, no kidding. So Nebraska
3: played at Florida State last year, but their game two years ago was Miami. I mean, come on, seriously. Mm -hmm. There's 14 teams in each league, and you've got to send the same team back to Lincoln. I mean, that, that, that just does not make sense for a variety of reasons. I'm not asking Duke, North Carolina to come here. Cause that's not going to happen, uh, but send a wake forest here or NC state or somebody, something new, somebody new Georgia tech. I mean, yeah. I don't Pittsburgh. I would like to see Nebraska Pittsburgh. I think that would be a fun one just uh, cause they've never played, but um, going down that stretch, Robin after the Barclays, that's a home game stretch of Miami, Appling Christian Creighton, Rhode Island, a Rhode Island, a Rhode Island Creighton's, Creighton's on the road, yeah. Rhode, Rhode Island and Sanford. To me, that is the defining stretch right there. Um, or they have to make
4: some hay yeah and you know the the two most intriguing home games uh, on the non-conference slate are obviously during that stretch uh, with you know Miami and Rhode Island I mean Miami uh, keep if you didn't remember was in the NIT finals last year and 125 games and they have their top four scorers back and you know Rhode Island obviously beat Nebraska last year uh, out, out there uh, in their first road game of the year in overtime and uh, you know they were an NIT team and they have four starters. creighton has
3: got two transfers um one from Boston College yeah. or Boston, and,
4: yeah, and Creighton beat Nebraska and, they, and Lincoln, and they're probably going to be but better than they were a year ago. Yeah, they're still going to be developing from everything
3: I've heard. Uh, but yeah, that that's going to be a tough game in Omaha as, as it always is. Um, but you look at thirteen games, Robin. I mean, what is a if you re, if I was to put a gun to your head and say, what's the realistic best case? I mean, is it a ten and three, kind of what you would shoot for? Nine and four. I mean, where, where, where do you fall right now on non-conference win-loss total if you look at this today?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think 10 wins is certainly uh, attainable, but it, a lot of it is going to depend on how things shake out uh, at the Barclays deal just because there's you know two games where you don't even know who you're playing yet. Uh, So, I mean, if they're, you know, able to get some favorable matchups there and, you know, maybe they're able to to, to pad that a little bit. But uh, some of the key games, you know, we mentioned about, I mean, that Rhode Island game is going to be huge for your RPI. You can't lose that game. There's like
3: six games they could theoretically lose, right? And I mean, if they they could go
4: three and three, that'd be
3: a 10 and three record in the non-conference.
4: Yeah. And you you just certainly don't want that. So uh, you got to hope that things gel, like Dan was talking about. It doesn't take too long for things to, to really get clicking because, like we said, I mean, you're getting thrown in the fire right away, two games. In at Villanova, and then you know you're spending four games on the road. Uh, you know a week later uh, out in Barclays, so uh, certainly going to pr- present some interesting challenges for a young team that uh, is try- still trying to figure itself out.
3: Well, it should be fun. I, I'm, I'm I'm excited again for another basketball season. I know it was a rough year last year, guys, but I think uh, the talent coming in. Uh, shouldn't make this intriguing to follow as there hasn't been a recruiting class like this in quite some time. All right, that's enough basketball talk. We're going to shift back over and uh, we're going to talk football here in our final two segments as uh, we're going to talk special teams and field position numbers next here in the podcast.
2: This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Back here on the HOL podcast, Sean
3: Callahan. Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett as we move back over to football talk guys we are uh, just about two weeks away from Big Ten Media Days July 29th uh, we will be in Chicago uh, the entire HOL staff as uh, we cover the Big Ten Media Days for Nebraska and uh, Jordan Westerkamp Tommy Armstrong uh, will be there as well as Nathan Gary representing Mike Riley in his first run of Big Ten media days. And I can't tell you how excited I am to get down to Chicago um, because it's going to be very, very interesting, just the storylines we get out of there uh, with Nebraska. And we'll talk more about that in the next few shows. But I wanted to bring this up. Uh, Dan, I was going through my preseason Athlon issue, um, and they did this advanced stat breakdown, and I had no idea this number existed. And it's funny, I talked to a few other guys around the program. They didn't know. uh, But last year, Nebraska – According to the Athlon stats, advanced stat breakdown was number one in the nation in starting field position um, compared to 2013, where they ranked towards one of the bottoms in the country. Nebraska's average starting offensive field position was the 36.1 yard line, which is that's incredibly high. Yeah, (laughs) that's basically you're 30 yards away from a field
1: goal. Mm-hmm. And you look at the year before, in 2013, they averaged starting at their own 28.2-yard line. So, I mean, that's almost an 8-yard difference that you're not having to make up on each and every drive. That's that's a huge number. Well, I, the, the, I can't imagine any other team in the country made it even close to that kind of a jump. And then the, the drives
3: in 13 that were inside the 10, inside the 5, inside the 20, I mean, it was almost embarrassing how many times – Nebraska was starting inside their own 20, inside the the 10 even, where they flipped that where they had very few the next year.
1: Yeah, Nebraska only started 21 drives uh, inside its own 20-yard line last year, which is a pretty good number. For comparison's sake, Nebraska's opponents last year playing against Nebraska started 45 drives inside their own 20-yard line. So Nebraska was able to get a huge edge in field position just from that number alone.
3: Well, and, they, and you know, you have to give the previous staff a lot of credit on that. Um, they more or less removed the special teams duties from Ross Ells without announcing it. And uh, Jeff Jamrog kind of took it over behind the scenes. Um I mean, he was the special teams coordinator for Frank Solage for years, had a lot of background. So he schematically drew up all the stuff behind the scenes, and obviously he couldn't coach it in practice. But uh, Bo Pellini was heavily involved, and they emphasized it, and it showed last year uh, defensively. Nebraska's opponents, Dan, started on the uh, 28-yard line, which that's pretty darn good when you think about it as well, uh, considering now a touchback is the 25.
1: Oh, yeah. I I mean, you remember going back to 2013, Nebraska's special teams, pretty much other than Pat Smith, the kicker, were – kind of a joke I mean they they couldn't uh, return punts which obviously hurts field position I think they kind of struggled covering kicks Sam Fultz was kind of inconsistent as a punter and they were not very good in that area and you have to give Bo Pelini and, and his staff credit because they did put an extra emphasis on that last spring uh, and last fall um in in practice and we saw that and Nebraska came out and had a tremendous year I think the coverage units were all much better we saw Nebraska block a number of kicks especially Kyron Williams uh Sam Foltz was just a new man and I think he's going to be even better this year he looked tremendous and then obviously you throw a guy uh like Demorne Pearsonell in there he's going to help swing field position several times well, he, a game
3: yeah two games jump out to me the Iowa game uh Pearsonell mm-hmm. even the Michigan State game mm-hmm. uh, what he did there but the Purdue game is one that people kind of forget about, uh, but if you remember, I think Nebraska blocked uh, one or two punts right off the bat in that game, mm-hmm. and the offense played just awful that day. Yep. I mean, yeah, wasn't it twenty-one to seven, or was the? I mean, it was like a really it was very ugly, yeah, ugly game uh, where Nebraska beat Rutgers and Purdue those two weeks, but you knew they they were not ready for Wisconsin, and it showed when they went out to Wisconsin. But special teams pretty much won them that Purdue game.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i i think you look at the the usc game and the bowl game i know that nebraska they gave up a kick return for a touchdown in that game that's something you don't want to see Yeah, amir Abdullah on kickoffs that but game. yeah amir had several uh very strong kickoffs that game uh I think Nebraska blocked at least. I think they blocked just one. Was it two, two. punts? Yeah, two. Kyron got two punts. And USC in that game. hadn't given up a blocked
3: punt in a few
1: years. Yeah, and I, I want to say DeMorne had at least one good return. I mean, you know that that's the kind of stuff that helps swing games. Nebraska was in a lot of trouble in that game, and I think those blocked punts really kind of helped them grab some momentum back, and Amir kind of helped, uh, you know, get Nebraska in good field position. It's field position just isn't something that really gets talked about all that often, but it is something that's really, really important.
3: And you just don't see people go after punts anymore with the protection shield. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when you talk about going after a punt and that protection shield, it's risky. Um, but you credit Nebraska; they saw things on film, they saw weaknesses that they could attack because those those blocks against USC. I mean, they were back there in in no time and. I think a lot of protection shield teams don't expect you to try to go after the punter anymore.
1: Yeah, I, it, teams almost just take it for granted. I think that you know you're just going to let them snap the ball and punt it because so few teams you know really go for that block. And I think you got to give it a lot of credit not only to the staff for kind of developing a scheme that allowed some guys to get back there, but heck, give some credit to Kyron Williams. I mean, he blocked three kicks last season. <laughs> That's pretty incredible for a freshman. I think this guy's a really special player and. It's a crowded spot back at that safety position, but even if he's not, you know, out on the field defensively, he can still have a huge impact on special teams, uh, trying to block punts and working as a gunner. I'm gonna be real intrigued
3: though on kicker this year. What I mean, I think Drew Brown's obviously got mm-hmm. the major advantage, but um, can this Jamie Sutcliffe, the walk-on junior college uh, kicker, make a run? Um, that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I'm skeptical. I think it's gonna be tougher for this kid than you think. Um, He's never kicked in a big stadium before. He's never
1: kicked to this kind of pressure. Yeah, what Pat Smith did a couple of years ago is not normal. Yeah. <laughs> that well, was
3: impressive. And there just aren't that many junior college kickers out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of a rare thing to see a Juco. So I'll be real curious um, how that plays out. But I, I can see Drew Brown being motivated, holding on that job. But, um, you know, the kickoff specialist role with Mauro Bondi gone. Um, You know, talking to some people, Spencer Lindsey, somebody I think that could end up winning that. Uh, But Jamie Sutcliffe was very good at touchbacks at the junior college level as well. So um, it will be interesting to see kind of what direction Bruce Reed goes with some of these spots.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers from last year, uh, Mauro Bondi. Almost 44 per or a little more than 44% of his kickoffs went for touchbacks. That's a pretty good number. Drew Brown was a little under 30%. And Spencer Lindsay, only one of his nine kickoffs went for a touchback. So unless he's added some strength to that leg, you know, uh, maybe maybe he's the guy Nebraska wants I don't know that'll be interesting to see but yeah Jamie Sutcliffe was a guy who sent about 40% of his kickoffs uh for touchbacks in junior college and like you said that's a different level you know it he would have to step it up at this level but uh but yeah I think that's going to be an interesting battle to watch I know you know Mara Bondi came became a little bit of a punchline here, you know, in his last couple seasons, but he did do a good job on kickoffs. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that that's not a guy that you want to be giving a scholarship to, but he did have an important role on this team.
3: I honestly think they could have kept him around his last year. I mean, they they have the numbers, mm-hmm. but they didn't he he wasn't even a factor. We all watched spring ball and he he didn't yeah. get any reps, so you kind of knew the writing was on the wall that he there, was yeah. going to be around, but I still think he had the best touchback leg. Yes, he was not an Adi Kanalik. I mean, remember no. when Adi Kanalik did it? They kicked from the thirty back then, uh-huh. and they moved it back to the thirty-five. And Kanalik was getting routine touchbacks from the thirty, which is crazy. I remember at Iowa State one year, Kanalik they had a fifteen-yard penalty that put them back to the fifteen and he put the ball in the end zone from the
1: 15-yard line. That dude could just kick it to the moon. It's incredible.
3: I mean, and the Iowa State return guy in Ames was playing up at about the 10, and he just skied it over the guy's head. I mean, (laughs) it was probably one of the better kickoff guys you'll ever see at Nebraska. But, yeah, that's an important part, um, and they've got to get some of this stuff figured out. There's no doubt.
1: Yeah, no question. You know, that's going to be an interesting battle in fall camp. You know, not only, like you mentioned, that place kicker position, but – Maybe depending on who wins that job, you know, that might help determine who takes that kickoff specialist spot.
3: All right. When we come back on the show, we're going to close things off. Uh, We've come out with our top 40 Huskers list. Uh, We've approached almost the top 10 status here. Uh, We're going to talk more about those ranking lists and and kind of
2: what we came up with next here in the podcast. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Final segment here of the podcast, Sean Callahan, Robin Washat, and Dan
3: Hoppen as uh, we continue our talk here, preseason football talk here for Nebraska as uh, they are getting closer and closer to the start of fall camp. Big Ten Media Days is about two weeks away as we'll be in Chicago uh, with full coverage. But as we do every year at this time, guys, we do another ranking series and uh, we do our top 40 Huskers of significance and – you know, it's a, it's a fun thing because each one of us have a, a very different, you know, set of rankings. And I think after the top 20, it's really wide open, maybe even top 15, uh, you know, spot 16 to 40, uh, very wide open on our list. And, you know, going up and down the groupings here, guys, uh, we are approaching the top 10, but we've got our basically our bottom 30 here we can talk about. Um, anything really jump out to you, Dan, when you start uh, looking at the, the, the
1: bottom 30 names here? Uh, you know, uh, nothing You know, not, nothing really crazy. I think probably just the, the weird thing looking at this list and the thing that I think, you know, we've only done this for the past couple years, but if we would have gone um, over the past six or seven years, I think in the top five, if not the top three every year, you would find a running back. Whether that were Roy Hallou or Rex Burkhead or Amir Abdullah, and this year, you know, there's just kind of that uncertainty at the position. There's so many guys that, you know, could have an impact. So, you know, you've got like a, a Terrell Newby at number 13. You've got Adam Taylor tying for 16. Um, Amani Cross and Mikhail Wilbon, I believe, were both on the list as well. So there's just kind of that uncertainty at the running back position that Nebraska's not used to seeing.
3: And I'll throw offensive line robin out there. There's another uncertainty. I mean, I I know I had Dylan Utter higher You guys had him a little lower, but he's probably a starter right now, and we had him at number, I believe, 32 on the list.
4: Yeah, and, you know, it goes back to the uh, uncertainty of the competition there. I mean, Alex Lewis is, you know, really the only – Uh, established starter at this point and other than that it's all wide open uh you know i mean you you look at some of the other names that you know made it on this list and it's funny because uh you know there's some guys that are still competing with each other for a starting job that you know both made the top 40 list so uh that can be a good and bad thing uh you know obviously you'd like to have more established guys up front but at the same time you also have some pretty good depth of guys competing for uh, starting jobs that uh, should make for a pretty good rotation
3: looking at wide receiver we had wester camp number 11 I believe on the list right is that where he fall number 10 number 10 um and so we're, we're kind of teasing that a little bit uh, he's someone you you could argue could be higher um you know he's very experienced but um you know the receiver position with Pearson and Riley there's just other spots that have more value or question um and and that, that's why a guy like Westercamp finished number 10 on the list but um it is interesting because um, you know, Terrell Newby, we project him as maybe the top running back, and um, but we, we don't know. Adam Taylor is right after him. Of the running backs on our list, I believe Amani Cross um, was third, and he's the leading rusher uh, by far returning.
1: Yeah, but I think, you know, I, we definitely saw at the end of spring ball, Terrell Newby was the guy. Um, Reggie Davis, the the position coach, talked about it. If anyone separated himself, it was Terrell Mm -hmm. Newby, and he was the guy who started um, for the red team in the spring game, and he actually looked great on those first couple drives and then had a minor injury, and they just kind of sat him out just because, you know, you don't want to risk it in an exhibition game, but I think if anyone did create a little bit of separation, it was him, and unfortunately, you know, for a guy like an Imani Cross who's been an incredibly hard worker, and he's put in a lot of of hard hours over these last couple years, but this new coaching staff just doesn't have any allegiances to him like the old staff did. You know, I think if if Bo Pelini and Tim Beck were still around, I think Amani Cross's standing would probably be higher because he'd built up, you know, some uh, some cachet with those guys. But this new staff, you know, they just they don't have that kind of relationship with Cross, so they're just going to put the best guy on the field. And right now, it looks like that might be newbie. Robin,
3: yep. uh, another guy is Jamal Turner, 39 on the list. If we did this list two years ago. Jamal Turner might be in the top fifteen.
4: Yeah, and what's funny is I I was the only guy to to rank him, and the only reason I did that was because you know I, I still am holding on to faith that you're a believer. Yeah, that, that he's going to become that guy that we all thought he was going to maybe not the, quite the player he was going to be when he was you know somersaulting over the goal line in the spring game as a true freshman, but uh, I, I think that he's still got you know enough in the tank that he, he can be a productive player in this passing game. I mean, he missed the first part of spring because of injury, but when he got back, he actually look pretty good. And you know, obviously he's going to have to uh, you know, fight for playing time with Pierce Snell, Westercamp and Brandon Riley, uh but I think that he's right there in the mix uh, as a guy with you know has the veteran presence to him that has made big plays and big games that uh should be able to be a be an impact guy. One snub Dan at
3: receiver was a lot more. I mean, he's somebody that started and played a lot last year when Brandon Riley was hurt. Um he could emerge but he didn't make our top 4.
1: Yeah, I think that's a guy you look look at him and got all the talent in the world and he's one of those guys who you can watch him practice and you'll see him make a play or two and you're just like holy cow this guy could really make an impact this year and then you see you know a ball bounce off his hands or you see Nebraska run a play and and uh and Keith Williams the receivers coach, is running out there and (laughs) showing him what he did wrong in his route so it's just it's all consistency with Alonzo Moore there's no question that the talent is there but but right now, you know, that receiver position is kind of crowded. We talked about Wesherkamp, Pearson all those guys we know are going to get a lot of touches. Brandon Riley had a fantastic spring. I think he's in for a big year. Robin just talked about Jamal Turner, you know, and then you, you know, you bring in guys like uh, Tariq Allen, Lane Hovey. I mean, Lane these, Hovey. Yeah. <laughs> That's Robin's guy. These are all guys who are going to be fighting for reps, and that's not even counting the true freshmen that are coming in. Stanley Morgan, LeVan Alston. Yeah. I mean, they both could play. Exactly. So, you know, if Alonzo Moore, he's got the talent to be on this list. I think if this was the top 40 most talented guys, he'd be on it, but he's got to prove it. Sticking with
3: freshmen, uh, Aaron Williams was our highest freshman. Was he
1: 30 or 31 on the list? Oh, we've got uh, Dedrick Young on here as well. Oh, Dedrick Young and Aaron Williams,
3: but – I want to go to Aaron Williams. You know, I, I've had some conversations with Brian Stewart, and, and Stewart feels like he's a guy that could potentially be a, a three-year starter at Nebraska, and, and those are strong words from a guy like Stewart who was the former defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, when I
4: talked to, to Stewart a little bit during those camps, you know, just having you know, some casual conversations with him, we, I asked him about Aaron Williams, and uh, what really was interesting to me uh, from what he said was you know, he's a guy you only have to tell something once. Uh, you know, for a true freshman to come in here and enroll early in the spring. Uh, it's funny because, you know, Stuart was saying, uh, you know, he'd tell him something and, you know, Williams just kind of has this nonchalant attitude. Like you don't even know if he's listening, but then he would go very next rep and do exactly what you just told him. And so he's got this kind of football mind that allows him to process and retain information a lot faster than not only guys his age, but, you know, guys a lot older than him too. And that's going to bode very well for his chances to be, a, a like you said, a fixture in that defensive yeah, he, backfield. Yeah, he's
3: not redshirt. There's no doubt about it. He will be on the field um, week one, all special teams, and um, be right behind Byerson Cockrell probably at safety.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this is a guy that I think when he came in and emerged so quickly, he might be part of the reason why Leroy Alexander is no longer on the team because when Cockrell was playing nickel uh, in the spring, it was Aaron Williams who was taking a lot of those first-team reps at safety and not Leroy Alexander. And this staff didn't have any, like you mentioned, allegiances
3: to Omani Cross. They weren't really big fans of Leroy Alexander. I mean, exactly they, they yeah. didn't think he was somebody. I think that was gonna, you know, be a starter on this team. And, and Leroy it sounds like he's at Youngstown State now. From um, this dicef- di- dicef- uh, dissecting or dicefer- deciphering, ciphering, excuse me, <laughs> got my dictionary. We got there. Um, Twitter conversations. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say.
4: No, That'll be a good fit for him, too. But, you know, like Dan mentioned, I mean, the the, the young uh, talent they have coming up in that defensive backfield is going to be so valuable down the road that, uh, you know, even if guys aren't playing, they're going to have uh, uh, plenty of uh, depth and, uh, like I said, talent to work with.
3: Well, guys, we're getting closer to the start of the season I'm looking forward to Chicago. I'm looking forward to see how much pizza Dan Hoppin eats. Oh, man. Uh, are you going to Malinati's? Malinati's. Oh,
4: come on, yeah. Dan's going to get his own pizza, and then, Sean, you and I are going to split one. I- I'm cool with that. <laughs> What's
3: crazy is a large deep dish at Malinati's is— is like cheap. It costs the same as a large pizza from Godfather's Pizza. Yep. And like, it's four times it's as it's good. It's way yeah. better. So, <laughs> I always tell my wife that when we spend like 30 bucks for a large pizza at Godfather's, I'm like, this is a rip-off. we <laughs> <laughs> to going to Lou Malinati's, but I'm looking forward to Chicago. Uh, next week we will have more previewing of the Big 10 media days as we get ready for Chicago, but that signs it off here for another edition of the huskeronline.com podcast.
2: Thanks again for joining us this week on HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics.